0: Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read.
1: I'm writing this from my mother's apartment.
0: It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story back What was the mom. inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I, to mm-hmm. I, I used to be almost dependent be.
1: on a voice. Speaker in a poem I want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> and the conversation starts.
0: Hello. Welcome to off the page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford university writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and talk with us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski Jones lecturer in the creative writing program. In this episode, Hugh Min win will read a selection of poems. Hugh Min Huyn is the author of two collections of poetry This Way to the Sugar from Right Bloody Press, and Not Here from Coffee House Press, which was named the winner of the Publishing Triangle's Tom Gunn Award for Gay Poetry. A recipient of the Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation, Hugh is also a 2018 McKnight Writing Fellow, a Kundiman Fellow, and a 2017 National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellow. His work has appeared in Poetry Magazine, Best American Poetry, The New York Times, and elsewhere. He is a graduate of the MFA Program for Writers at Warren Wilson College. Previously a Stegner Fellow in Poetry, he is currently a Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program at Stanford University.
1: I guess I can start by reading the first poem I wrote when I came to California. This poem is called The Understudy. Even in California, all of my friends require touch to get through winter. It's true, I'm waiting to be in love in front of the people I love. He says, I'm glad you're here, and I want to cover his mouth to warm my hands. Of course, I understand how one would mistake that earthquake for a passing train, but what do we do with the stillness When after great change, nothing moves, but his hand sliding a glass of wine across the table. Instructing me to drink with a single nod, I bring the glass to my face, but don't let a drop pass my lips. Beside him, I am almost somewhere I'd like to be for a while. To make him smile, I tell him I am bad at sex. To make him kiss me, I tell him when I'm happy, I go looking for things I haven't lost yet. One of the things that I've been really interested in since coming to California was the first time I ever left the Midwest is the idea of beginnings. How do you start something? And I wrote this poem at the start of the new decade, and in this poem, I tried to make it full of beginnings. Every line I felt as if it was kind of the start of a conversation, and I tried to not finish those conversations. The new decade. I keep thinking there's a piano nearby. I keep thinking it's my favorite song. It's my favorite song. Below the marquee, I arrange the marquee. Happy New Year, buddy. Happy another one, sweetheart. Out of ways to call you dead, I decide to call you busy. Call you at midnight from West Oakland. These days, I raise a glass to make sure it's empty. Even when I was a drunk, I thought champagne was pointless. In my two-story civility, I stick my head out each window and scream, excuse me, excuse me, I'm trying to remember a story about gold, about a giant falling from the sky. Someone once asked who I prayed to. I said a boy with a missing front tooth. In this order, I ask first for water, which might mean mercy, which might mean swing by in an hour and I'll tell you the rest. If you were here, we'd dance, I think. If you were here, you'd know what to do, what to do with all this time. This is a poem I like to read when I'm invited to read at fancy places that I never envisioned myself being at, if that makes sense. I mean, I think for a long time I didn't imagine myself outside of the neighborhood I grew up in. And so this is a poem kind of about that. Of all the things I've tried to do, I was probably worst at selling weed. Robbed weekly, used too much of my own product, cut each bag with a dash of oregano, But then I have to consider that summer Maddie asked me to help him boost cars. His dad called me a liability, too paranoid to be lookout, too shaky to use the Slim Jim, didn't even know how to drive stick. Oh yeah, and let's not forget that time Mo almost lost an arm after I convinced him to pay me 20 bucks to stitch his wound with fishing line instead of going to the hospital, or that time I convinced Aaliyah to let me tattoo a cross on her ankle with a safety pin and a ballpoint. And then there's that time I swiped a stetner from Carl Maggie's locker and tried to set myself straight by becoming a violinist. But of course, the noise complaints. The neighbors banging the portrait off the walls. The boys talking calling me prodigy, fancy chink. And I wonder if they're still having a good laugh. Like when they found out I wanted to be a poet, so they glued roses and violets to the hood of my Kia. And so maybe I wanted, for the first time, to prove them wrong. Prove I didn't belong there and so maybe I made new friends. Friends who wrote poems, who sat around talking about poems, who went to school to study poems and lived in off campus apartments where I crashed on nights I got too up on white boy drugs to drive back to the east side where even without me the rosin glow of junkers trace the block where mandy three years sober tucks the kiddos into bed where lee first in his class spray paints the fleet of stolen bikes gold where andrew stands in the kitchen reading the bible in the dim light from the microwave where nikki years later coming home after a double at champs calls to wish me a happy birthday I am, of course, too busy to answer. Somewhere in a different time zone, at a swanky party celebrating a man I do not know, who just won an award for a book I have not read. And the woman who smells of citrus, who's been raving to me all night about how much she admires my work, excuses herself to use the bathroom, leaving in the seat beside me her open purse. Staying quiet. Once, a man named a thing beautiful, and so we wore it, buried it, turned it into currency. Somewhere, maybe here, maybe now, I stand completely still until he looks in my direction. Sometimes I don't believe I exist until someone calls me beautiful. Sometimes any warm thing will do. Sometimes it's me, a warm thing in the low light, beautiful, is what the man called me after he did what he wanted with. I'm running out of ways to describe it. My body, my silence, beautiful. Why, I ask, in order to love yourself, must you first be loved? A bone sucked clean of its marrow, a trail of ants magnified into ash, and of course, I'm asking no one. And of course, I know the answer. Of course, I know it's not me they're looking for, the men I mean, and I wish he didn't feel the need to speak. Really wished, like me, he just kept quiet, but no, he had to speak. He had to say, beautiful, and now, it, my body appears trapped in the long tunnel of a telescope, and now I am here attending the aftermath of my own ruin with nothing but beautiful to keep me company. Maybe he meant the city beyond the window. Maybe he was talking to himself. Maybe beautiful, as in good job, as in look what I just did with my own two hands. Portrait with Self-Portrait. Under the bathroom lights, I master the art of the perfect selfie. Angle my face so it looks like my face, but not too much like my face. In this photo, I could be on a beach, in a museum, volunteering at a nursing home. You'd never guess by looking. I was at Seven Eleven, ankle deep in toilet water. There are a few different strategies when it comes to hookup apps. Some people set the bar low. Attempting to look worse in their photos, so when you show up at their apartment, you are pleasantly surprised at the absence of a ponytail. Some people go to extremes to alter the way they look. Smoothing their skin into a blur of pixels, some men use their abs or hooked fish as the focal point. Some men remove their face completely, decapitate themselves. Rows and rows of headless torsos fill my screen. Even in the gallery of the beheaded, you'll find mouths to fill. Tonight, when a faceless man messages me, I recognize him first by his hands, his wedding band. Remember the flat of his palm against my mouth, even when I made no sound. When I don't respond to his message, he reveals his face. Remember me? As if I couldn't hear the head beneath the cloche platter, still saying I was lucky, saying I should be grateful he stayed when he saw me. Remember me? This portrait, the same one he used before, the kind a man would take not to make himself feel handsome or beautiful, but to prove he was important. The kind of portrait he imagined being carved into a coin one day. I learned early that a photograph could be used as currency. A man holds up the baby photo in his wallet and the gunman redirects his aim entire political careers and between the white borders of a Polaroid, Al Franken resigns, Chris Lee resigns, the princess of Wales died in the back of Mercedes trying to escape the aperture. When I was younger, my mother would fan out a collage of women and ask me to choose a bride. I didn't. Instead, I became one, draped myself in the white of the exposure in their wedding photos, My father grips my mother's face and forces her to smile. In Galveston, Texas, Leslie Ray Charping's children write, Evil does, in fact, die in his obituary. Does it? Or does evil cast its light, yes, light, on everything it touches, imprinting itself inside us, an image we trace into the dark? Some men don't care about being missed. Some men only want to be remembered. Some men stare at the reflection and dare it to stay. Changeling. Standing in front of a mirror, my mother tells me she is ugly. Says the medication is making her fat. I laugh and walk her back to the bed. My mother tells me she is ugly in the same voice she used to say, no woman could love you. And I watch her pull at her body and it is mine my heavy breast, my disappointing shape. She asked for a bowl of plain broth and it becomes the cup of vinegar she would pour down my throat every day after school. I would kneel before her. I would remove my clothes and ask her to mark the progress. It's important that I mention I truly wanted to be beautiful for her. In my dreams, I am thin. And if not thin, something better. I tell my mother she is still beautiful and she laughs. The room fills with flies. They gather in the shape of a small boy. They lead her back to the mirror, but my reflection is still there. Uptown Minneapolis, Minnesota. Even though it's May, and the ice cream truck parked outside my apartment is somehow certain, I have a hard time believing winter is somehow, all of a sudden, over. The worst one of my life, the woman at the bank tells me. Though I'd like to be, it's impossible to be prepared for everything. Even the mundane hum of my phone catches me off guard today. Every voice that says my name is a voice I don't think I could possibly leave. It's unfair to not ask for the things you need. Even though I think about it often. Even though leaving is a train headed somewhere I'd probably hate... Crossing Lindale to meet a friend for coffee, I have to maneuver around a hearse that pulled too far into the crosswalk. It's empty. Perhaps spring is here. Perhaps it will all be worth it. Even though I knew that even then it was worth it, staying, I mean, even now, there is someone, somehow,
0: waiting for me. Hi, Hugh. <laughs>
1: Hi, Mark. <laughs> Thanks for
0: being here on Off the Page.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have to say the first thing, this is really tangential, but I'd never heard of that obituary before. I read Portrait with Self-Portrait. All my students knew what it was. I missed the viral moment but I read it, and it was so intense.
1: So brutal. Right? So yeah. brutal.
0: An amazing text in and of itself. And I'm a fiction writer, so one of the things I really find amazing in a poem which I think you do in Portrait with Self-Portrait, is when you make these associative leaps from one subject to another versus being chained to logic and causality and narrative like prose writers. And I think that that poem in particular goes on such an interesting journey. I'm curious, with a piece like that or with poems in general, do you find yourself writing by sort of like accretion, like bit by bit? Is it more coming out in a burst?
1: Yeah, I feel like for me... My favorite poems I've ever written have all come out in one sitting. These days I'm much slower to write, and so I'll have a log on my phone of little lines and little thoughts. And when I finally have the time to write, I'll sit down and I'll try to find a way to piece these little thoughts together, which is fun and I think has changed a lot of the way my poems move. But yeah, I think I used to be a person who could sit down and write like a full draft in one sitting. And I don't know exactly where that person went, but I guess I've been trying to learn how to live without him. Hopefully he'll return. Okay, I listened to a TED Talk once by Elizabeth Gilbert, where I think she talked about one of the ancient art societies. They believed that an artist wasn't responsible for the art that the spirit of a genius would come down and enter them and the spirit like lived in the walls of their studio and when these artists weren't able to produce art or they were at a block they would just say the genius is vi- visiting someone else or is gone and i like to like think that when i'm unable to write or slower at writing than I used to be is that either I am possessed by a different spirit or that person who wrote those poems that I had before is just busy.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like I look back at earlier things I wrote and it seems like it was written by a different person. you know, I can't remember making those choices or even being interested in that stuff.
1: How? Right. You know, you mentioned Leslie Ray Charping and I was like, how did I find that obituary? Why did I think of that when writing the poem?
0: I wonder, like you were talking about writing more in like full bursts versus incrementally but i wonder also is that connected to i know you started a more spoken word slam background and now write more for the page what was that transition like and do you still consider that oral or performative tradition now when you're writing something on the page
1: i wouldn't say that like i am now not writing poems to not be performed the oral tradition has always informed my work. And when I'm writing, I'm also writing out loud. And I think I care about like, the sound and quality of the poem. Writing out loud is really helpful for me, especially in revision, to hear like, ooh, this word doesn't sound right in this spot, or like the syntax is off and I should probably rearrange this line. Or it also helps me hear what an audience or reader might hear when they're listening to my work or reading my work. I think I also, when I was first starting, I had less voices in my head less knowledge about what I was doing wrong or right or preferences. I feel like the person who was able to write in like one burst was, I guess, also less critical of themselves. Not to talk about myself as a a different person, but I think those poems, I allowed them to be messy. It's not that I can't allow myself to be messy now, but I feel sometimes too aware of what I'm doing. I want my work to be informed, but sometimes in the process, I don't want it to be so controlled.
0: How do you balance the revision process with preserving some kind of messiness or some kind Ooh, of spontaneity?
1: Yeah. I always want my poems to sound, in a way, human. You know, like like something that is attached to a body. And I think people are messy, and pe- the way people say things and formulate their sentences and words are messy, and so I try to preserve that. I guess in my revision process, I'm not trying to correct messiness. I guess in my revision process, I'm, I'm mostly thinking about the reader or the audience member, because I feel like in the writing process, I'm thinking of the speaker and myself and all the things that I know. And so in the revision process, I have to look at it from someone who might not know what I know and try to like see if they can find a way into the poem, make room for them in the revision process.
0: Do you have a particular reader in mind? Do you envision some ideal reader? Mm.
1: You know, I think a lot of people start off by like trying to be the writer that we needed, you know, when we were younger. I think I write because I think loneliness is the language we are all fluent in, and trying to find company in our particular solitudes is, is, I guess, the goal. And so I don't know if that is geared towards a specific audience, but maybe just anyone who could relate to anything I say. Poetry is also just like a really lonely genre. I turn to poetry to try to find company and companionship and One of my mentors, Paulo Tremba, used to talk about his books as his companions. He'd be like, oh, today my companion is Mary Rufel. I was like, oh, she's hanging out with you? She's like, no, no, I'm just carrying her book with me. Yeah, and I love that, to think of poems as living things that can keep you company.
0: That is a beautiful way of thinking about it, because you are both adding to that in the work you create, and then also finding company in the work of other poets. I also want to ask you about the importance of place in your work. You mentioned earlier that, you know, at one point you thought you might never leave the neighborhood in Minneapolis that you grew up in. You mentioned that The Understudy was the first poem you wrote in California. So I'm curious, how has place informed your work? And, and then how has coming to California, coming to the Bay Area, changed it?
1: Yeah. I have a complicated relationship with place because I think I have a complicated relationship with belonging right or like i feel like i'm bored of trying to find a place that i belong not to get like all musical about it but yeah i think i want to like renounce that desire but i feel so tethered to it because of growing up in the midwest and like hearing how other people talk about the midwest when i talk to like other Vietnamese people who grew up in like coastal cities and I tell them that I grew up in the Midwest and they're like oh so why and then I, I feel defensive of it because I grew up surrounded by like Vietnamese people and so I didn't realize how small the Vietnamese community was until I got older. I do feel like the immigrant communities and like um, the communities of color do get erased in the Midwest and so a part of me is like defensive of the Midwest but also want to acknowledge that it isn't always a welcoming place. So yeah, my relationship to place fluctuates from like trying to be defensive of a place or like trying to renounce a place because it is dangerous. And I guess it's that's just like my relationship to everywhere maybe. Like I'm I'm first generation Vietnamese American. Or second-generation? I don't know. My mo- my mother immigrated here from Vietnam. I never know, like, is it first-generation or is it second-generation? <laughs> but my mother immigrated here from Vietnam, and she is the last living person in my family. And I'm also an only child, and so my relationship to this country only extends one other generation. And so when she passes, like, what is tethering me to this place other than I was born here? Or, like, what is tethering me to, like, Minnesota other than the fact that she lives there? right? I guess memories, I guess, like, nostalgic qualities, but, like, I still have those inside me. I guess I'm just trying to understand if I need this feeling of belonging, or if I can live without it.
0: It actually makes me think of a line from the understudy that I really liked. I'm almost somewhere I'd like to be for a while. That feels like it might speak to an uneasy relationship with place.
1: Yeah, because maybe I'd like to be somewhere else. Maybe or here. Or, or, or here, yeah. or staying here. I will, like, here that someone is from, like, Minnesota, and I'll get so excited. And maybe I'm trying to also kill the feeling because I don't know if I'll ever go back. Yeah, I feel like the future is so uncertain, and especially, like, not knowing where you're going to end up to try to not have any kind of lineage to a place and and knowing also that you are on, like, stolen land. You have no claim to it, regardless if you were born here.
0: Well, and I mean, people also talk about how, like, this is really a separate issue, but we're kind of in a post-place world now because people really live online and are less rooted to place than they were in earlier generations. Writers, too, especially. Yeah. Like, you're, you know, moving around for program, fellowship, gig here, gig there. Yeah.
1: So what can you claim as your own, you know? Maybe it's not a place. And, you know, like I don't think I'm ever interested in, like, owning a home or, like, doing what is required to be a homeowner. But I would, like, just to be able to paint my walls without asking a landlord.
0: Do you feel like California has had an effect on your writing?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think California has like changed me a lot of ways that I don't know if it's reflected in my writing yet. I feel like a changed person here or a different person. I think I'm too in it to see how it's changed my writing. But I think California is also a place that makes me feel like I don't only have writing because I think when I was in Minnesota, It was like the thing I turned to during the winters when they were so brutal and you couldn't leave the house. In California, there's so many distractions. And so it it could be a good thing or a bad thing for my writing. But I feel like I'm living a lot more than I did in Minnesota.
0: More more distractions, but also more life, maybe. Yeah. Maybe the last thing I'll ask you is I know some of the pieces you read for us are older. Some of the pieces are newer. Are the newer ones part of a project or a book? Do you have some sense of what that's starting to look like?
1: Yeah. For the past few years, I've been working on my third collection of poetry. The title is still coming together. I'm very indecisive. The poems are a lot about place and trying to, yeah, renounce the desire to belong anywhere, renounce place, also to renounce beauty as well. And maybe that's also tied to place in many ways. Yeah, and so slowly working on it, finally have a draft of it where I can, like, put it all in one document and not just a bunch of separate poems. So they're slowly piling up.
0: Thank you, Hugh, so much for being with us on Off the Page.
1: Oh, my God. Thank you for having me.
0: Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Programme. This episode was produced by Isabel Edgar and myself with support from Jackson Roach and Laura Davis. Thanks to Jonah Willigans for his supervision and Christina Ablaza and Daniel Hulaganga at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening.